Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, this is the Soul Anchor Podcast, and I'm your host, Vidal Moreno. In the Soul Anchor Podcast, we seek to anchor our faith in the truths of the Bible while we sail across the sea seeking adventures where they can be found. Christian history has many superheroes, such as Irenaeus, Augustine, Ansem, and Luther. But such superheroes did not rise to their stature in a vacuum. What they built was built on the shoulders of those who came before them. They may have been superheroes, but they could not have done what they did without the heroes that came before them, or beside them, or after them. We have already met many extraordinary men in the 16th century, but we have not even scratched the surface. The list goes on and on. We will take the next two weeks to explore these amazing people so that you can be inspired by their contributions and their lives. Philip Melanchthon was born in 1497 in Germany. He was a child prodigy, graduating from two universities as a teenager. While in the University of Tübingen, he came under the influence of the humanists and became a lifelong admirer of Erasmus. He was eventually appointed as professor of Greek at Wittenberg University in 1518. There he met Luther and became Martin's closest friend. Unlike Luther, Philip was timid, tolerant, and conciliatory. These friends were polar opposites, and perhaps that was the secret of their friendship. They balanced each other. Melanchthon was the author of the Augsburg Confession, the most important Lutheran confession of faith. His main theological book, Commonplaces, was the first Protestant attempt at a systematic theology, which is basically a what-we-believe manual. Philip's goal was to rescue theology from philosophical distortions and to give it firm scriptural basis. Philip eventually came to a deeper appreciation for the early church fathers. Scripture was the ultimate truth, but he came to rely on them for their insights. When the rift occurred between Zwingli and Luther over the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, he sided with Luther, whose position was closer to that of Catholicism. Eventually, his study of the church fathers brought him to the conclusion that Luther was wrong. Because Melanchthon was a moderate and refused to take extreme positions, he was often attacked by both sides. Perhaps my favorite quote from Philip gives us insight into this amazing man. Quote, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In 1530, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V called an imperial deet at Augsburg, Germany, in order to settle the dispute with the Protestants. Melanchthon drew up a Protestant confession of faith based on some of Luther's writings. The finished product had the approval of Luther, who was unable to attend because he had been excommunicated and feared arrest. 
In June, it was read to the emperor in hopes that the emperor might recognize Protestantism. This became known as the Augsburg Confession. Charles commissioned Roman Catholics to refute the confession, and their work was read in August. Melanchthon then wrote a rebuttal to this confession in September, but ultimately Charles V rejected it. The confession was in two parts. The first part consisted of 21 articles setting out Lutheran beliefs. Some of these followed Catherine doctrines, such as God, original sin, baptism. Other articles were distinctly Lutheran, such as justification by faith, the Lord's Supper, and good works. The second part consisted of seven articles concerning abuses which had been corrected in the Lutheran churches, such as withholding the Eucharist cup from the people and forbidding clergy to marry. Ulrich Zwingli is the founder of Swiss Protestantism and the first of the Reformed theologians. He was born in 1484 in Zurich, 52 days after Luther was born. He arrived at Luther's position independent of Martin, even though their backgrounds were very different. Unlike Luther, Zwingli was strongly influenced by the humanism of Erasmus. Ulrich, a student of Aquinas, believed that reason was compatible with doctrine, while Luther allowed considerably less role for reason. Because of their educational differences, they approached theology differently, especially when it came to their views on the Lord's Supper. In 1506, Zwingli was appointed as a parish priest in Switzerland. It is at this time that he realized the supreme and final role of Scripture. He began to preach through the Bible, which at the time was a radical innovation. At Zurich, Zwingli began to fully develop his ideas on the Reformation with the approval of the Catholic Church. By 1525, the Reformation of the Church was complete in Zurich. At this point, the Vatican authorities were no longer interested in coddling Zwingli. Violence ensued, and then a civil war, which resulted in Zwingli's untimely death in 1529. In his book, The Clarity and Certainty of God's Word, published in 1522, Zwingli explained the foundational Protestant principle of the final authority of Scripture. In it, he warns that the Bible should be used to interpret itself and that it can be easily misinterpreted by people who are trying to use it to justify their sinful actions. Certainty did not come from church authority, but from humbly listening to God himself. His emphasis on listening to Scripture did not prevent him from having disagreements over the nature of the sacraments. He believed in infant baptism on the basis that it was the sign of the covenant, and the covenant embraces the whole family and not just an individual. Even though he kept infant baptism, unlike Luther and the Catholics, he taught that the child was not justified by this act. He was not forgiven by baptism. He taught that baptism was an outward sign of what had happened inside. The second controversy was with Luther over the Lord's Supper. Luther rejected transubstantiation, but continued to believe in the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the bread and wine. Zwingli believed that the bread and the wine were merely symbolic of Christ's body and blood. The Lord's Supper was a thanksgiving memorial in which we look back 
to the work of Jesus on the cross. It is also a fellowship meal in which the body of Christ is present. Eventually, Butcher and Calvin developed this idea further. We will discuss both of these men in a coming episode. Johann Heinrich Bullinger was born in 1504 in Zurich, where his father was a parish priest. In 1516, Johann left home to attend a school where he was educated according to the principles of Renaissance humanism. Three years later, he attended the University of Cologne, where he was taught the scholastic theology of Aquinas and John Dunce. At this time, Luther's books were being burned at the university. In order to resolve the controversy, he threw himself into studying the church fathers and came to the conclusion that Luther was right. In 1523, Johann met Zwingli in Zurich and found that they had much in common. Johann became a pastor in Bremgarten, where he became known as the Reformer of Bremgarten. Eventually, he married a former nun and had 11 children. In 1531, after the death of Zwingli, Bullinger was called to come and replace Zwingli as the minister of Zurich. He remained there until his death in 1575. As the leader of the Zurich church, Bullinger became involved in the controversy between the Anabaptists and the Lutherans. He also played an important role in the development of Reformed theology and church life. His biggest concern in ministry was to promote unity between Reformed Christians and had a close friendship with Calvin. They did not agree on some matters, but they worked through their differences to co-author the Zurich Agreement, which nailed down the Reformed teaching of the Lord's Supper. Bullinger played an important role in the English Reformation. During the reign of Queen Mary from 53 to 58, Zurich played host to a number of Protestant exiles. Many of these men maintained their relationship with Johann even after their return to their positions of leadership in England. A selection of 50 of his sermons on Christian doctrine, called Decades, were published as a textbook in Elizabethan England. Not only did the 16th century provide us with a wealth of Christian teachers, but also Christian teachings. In 1559, Frederick III, the ruler of one of the German states, commissioned a catechism, a system of learning for use in churches and schools. This was written in 1562 by a team of theologians from Heidelberg University. It was published in various languages. It combined, quote, the intimacy of Luther, the charity of Melanchthon, and the fire of Calvin, unquote. The document comprises 129 questions and answers. These are divided into 52 Sundays so that the catechism can be fitted into a year's program. The whole catechism was divided into three parts, man's misery, man's redemption, and the power of thankfulness. Jacob Arminius, that was not his real name. That was the Latin name he took. I can't pronounce his real name, was born in Holland around 1560. As a young man, he studied theology under Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor in Geneva. He was ordained as a pastor and began his ministry in Amsterdam. In 1589, he was called upon to defend the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination against the attacks of Dirk Kornhurt. He ended up being persuaded that he was wrong. The more he studied, the more he found that his beliefs had drifted away from Calvinism. 
1602, when an outbreak of plague wiped out a number of professors in the Leiden University, he was invited to join the university as a professor. His views on predestination were clearly set out in his book, Declaration of Sentiments. He taught that there were four decrees of God. First, Jesus Christ was decreed by God the Father to win salvation for man. Secondly, God decreed to accept and save all who would repent and believe in Jesus and to reject impenitent unbelievers. Thirdly, God decreed to provide the means necessary for man to repent and believe. And finally, God decreed the salvation of certain individuals because he foresaw that they would believe and persevere to the end. By this, Arminius rejected the Augustinian Calvinistic idea of unconditional election, that God elects people for salvation regardless of any merit in them. He, like the Calvinists, believed that in his natural state, man cannot do any good at all, nor resist temptation without God's intervention. He stressed that we are dependent on God's grace, but this grace is given in such a way that we are left to decide whether or not we will accept it. God makes our salvation possible, not inevitable. Thus, the ultimate choice regarding salvation is made by us. God's election was not based on God's choice, but on our choice. This was the biggest difference between him and the Calvinists. The Calvinists teach that we choose him because God chose us. Arminians believe that God chose us because we chose him. Even after his death, the controversy continued as many pastors chose to follow Arminius' teachings. Today, Methodists and many Baptists adhere to Arminianism, while Presbyterians and other Reformed groups adhere to Calvinism. William Tyndale was born in the 1490s on the Welsh border. He was educated in Oxford and Cambridge. He began work as a tutor to a very wealthy family. While living in the household, he was amazed at the ignorance of the local clergy. In response to this situation, he was quoted as saying to a cleric, quote, I will cause that a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than dost thou, unquote. At this time, the only English translation was the Wycliffe Bible, which was distributed by the Lollards. This Bible was still a manuscript. It was hand-copied and had accumulated many errors. It was also a translation from the Latin Vulgate. Tyndale committed to himself to making a new, accurate translation from the original Hebrew and Greek. At first, he was hopeful that the English Catholic Church would finance his project. But the church leaders at the time were dealing with the invasion of Lutheran ideas and rejected him. Eventually, he was financed by wealthy merchants in London. Because England was not a safe place for translating the Bible, Tyndale moved to Germany in 1524, never to return. By 1525, the New Testament was ready for press. Because he was in constant danger, even in Germany, it was not until 1526 that the New Testament was finally printed in Worms, Germany. By 1530, the Pentateuch was ready for press. 
the Tyndale New Testament was finally smuggled back into England. Tyndale's translation has had an immense influence and earned him the title of, quote, the father of the English Bible, unquote. About 90% of his words passed down to the King James Version and about 75% into the Revised Standard Version, still used by Catholics today. Tyndale hoped to translate the entire Old Testament, but in 1535, he was arrested. He was executed in 1536. His last words were reportedly, quote, Lord, open the king of England's eyes, unquote. Little did he know that back in England, his prayers were being answered by one of the king's advisors, Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was born in England in 1489. He studied in Cambridge, becoming a member of the faculty in 1511. It was in Cambridge in the 20s that he came across Erasmus's Greek New Testament. When Henry VIII got himself into trouble by getting his mistress pregnant, while still married to the Holy Roman Emperor's aunt, he put in a call to English theologians for a legal way out of the situation. In 1529, Cranmer put forward the bright idea of consulting the universities for their judgment. Henry heard of this and sent Cranmer on a tour of the European universities. The intelligence Cranmer gathered led to the Act of Supremacy of 1534. When the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, Henry appoints a reluctant Cranmer to replace him. Cranmer did a great job because of two reasons. He believed sincerely in the authority of the godly prince over the church, and his views gradually moved toward Protestantism at about the right speed for Henry. At first, Cranmer gained some notable victories, the publication of the English Bible, which relied heavily on the Tyndale translation, and its installation in every parish church. His second great victory was the publication of Ten Articles, which leaned on Lutheran teachings. In 1539, when Henry began to move back toward Catholicism, his conservative enemies tried to oust him. When his longtime ally Thomas Cromwell was deposed and executed, Thomas feared he would be next. But Henry always respected him and managed to protect him. When Henry VI succeeded Henry in 1547, Cranmer took advantage of the move back toward Protestantism by pushing for real reform. Under his leadership, the Book of Common Prayers was published. This teaching was not too far from traditional Catholic way of doing things, so the conservatives managed to work around it. After being criticized by more zealous Protestants, the book was edited and republished in 1552. This version was more boldly Protestant. Eventually, the 1562 version would reign supreme in Anglicanism for 300 years. Cranmer had a hand in crafting the book and its future editions. In 1547, Cranmer included some of his own homilies, short sermons, in order to publish the Book of Homilies. These were evangelical sermons to be read in parishes where there were no qualified preacher. When Edward dies in 53, things went south for Cranmer very quickly. Mary lost little time in dismantling Edward's reforms. 
many of Cranmer's reformers ended up being executed because of the length of time that Cranmer had served in Canterbury. Mary had a more difficult time ousting Cranmer. His allies and the government tried to persuade Thomas to recant his Protestant beliefs, exploiting his teachings on the sovereign's authority over the church. He was persuaded to recant because his sovereign was now ordering him to revert to Catholicism. But then Mary made a great mistake. She ordered Cranmer to be executed despite his recantation. Cranmer was supposed to publicly renounce Protestantism at his execution. Instead, Thomas renounced his recantation and reaffirmed his Protestant beliefs. He was rushed to the stake where he was martyred by fire. When Mary took reign, Protestantism was not that popular, but the courageous martyrdom of Cranmer and around 200 of his fellow Protestants won the hearts of the people in a way that Edward's legislators never could. Next week, we will continue exploring more of these amazing thinkers of the 16th century. If you're enjoying the Soul Anchor podcast and would like to automatically receive the podcast every time I upload an episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Soul Anchor Podcast is also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The Soul Anchor Podcast Facebook page has the complete transcript of this episode. Like the page so that you can receive notification when I post information about these episodes. I invite all my listeners to message me on Facebook or email me at vidmore at yahoo.com. That's V-I-D-M-O-R at yahoo.com. Getting back to the podcast, if you're enjoying the podcast, tell others about it and leave a five-star review because that will allow the podcast to get more recognition in the community. Till we meet again. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.